This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The city of Hamilton has uh, unleashed uh, some stats uh, over the last number of years regarding uh, collisions on the Red Hill Valley Parkway and the Lincoln Alexander Parkway, uh, more commonly known as the Red Hill and the Link, uh, over the last few years. And um, the really uh, head-scratching statistics. Uh, Here's just uh, one of the many things that we'll talk about over the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Between 2012 and 2015, there were, according to my calculations on on the chart that I saw, uh, 617 crashes. So just over 600 crashes on the Red Hill. Uh, During that same time frame, in that three-year period, there were 377 collisions on the link. Uh, There are some hot spots on the Red Hill for sure, between Dartnell and Mud, and between Green Hill and King. Those seem to be the two big trouble spots. By comparison, the biggest trouble spot on the link is between uh, Upper Ottawa and Dartnell. Now, here's the stat, or at least one of them, that really caught my eye. Every day, there's about 58,000 vehicles that travel on the Red Hill. That's a lot of vehicles. In comparison, though, the link is about 96,000. So not quite double, but almost. And uh, there's so many more crashes on the Red Hill compared to the Lynx. So what gives? Let's start the conversation with the city councillor for Ward 4, Sam Marula, who joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Sam, how are you? I'm doing well, Rick, and yourself. Not too bad. So uh, how alarming are these statistics as a city councillor, as, as a representative of this city? How alarming are they? Well, the most alarming component is that the vast majority of all of those collisions are as a result of human behaviour. So uh, when you take speed, uh, impaired driving, and other uh, human factors, uh, three-quarters of those accidents would not have occurred. Having said that, we need to look at this fast, furious, and stupid society that is in a hurry to get to a stoplight or a stop sign. And the culture that exists right now is one that is very dangerous in that it's all about this entitlement a driver feels behind the wheel. And they don't have that entitlement. And as a result, people are dying. So. They need to focus in on a number of issues, and the issue is this. Speed kills, and as a city, we've commissioned a series of studies which indicates that the engineering of the road is fine, that the speed in which people are traveling the road is not fine. So if people slow down, uh, vehicular collisions will also be diminished. And it's really that simple. So what we've done is, with the support of my council colleagues, particularly Council Collins, Jackson and Conley, who shared the Red Hill, we've been very aggressive in identifying presenting problems and trying to find solutions accordingly. And frankly, what it comes down to is, I believe, photo radar. I think once that is incorporated, you'll find that this entitlement that some people believe that they can travel at 140 kilometers an hour on a road that was designed for 90 will be stopped. And until then, we have to face um, these, these issues head on which we will accordingly. I agree with all that you said, except for one thing. Even with photo radar, I think it. I, I think the number of speeders will diminish. I don't think it will completely be uh, eliminated, though. Well, no, nothing will eliminate it. But if we mitigate it, and there's a direct correlation between speed and fatalities, so as a result of that, um, you'll see a decrease in fatalities as well as well as collisions. Much has been made about the design of the Red Hill Valley Parkway. It's too twisty. The asphalt is, is maybe slipperier than you know other surfaces. Uh, there isn't uh, you know a median uh, to prevent crossover crashes. What do you say to all that? Rick, if, if it's travel does prescribed at 90 kilometers an hour, it's a fine. It's a fine road. 
if people expect to travel 140 kilometers an hour on a road designed for 90, you're looking for trouble. It's really that simple. And as the experts state, a, a, a wall of any kind, building a wall, is not going to prevent uh, collisions. Actually, what they say is it might actually increase collisions on the one side of the road. So you're not really solving a problem. You might be solving it from a public relations component, but that's pretty irresponsible and politically expedient to spend millions of dollars to give the optics of providing a safer road when in reality you could very well be making it more unsafe. Has there been any conversation with Hamilton police to, to have a bigger police presence on the Red Hill, at, at least oh, with, with a blitz? Absolutely. They've, uh, they have enhanced. Uh, they've, they're, they're doing a great job. They can't be everywhere at every time of the day. So they, they have blitzed it. They've been issuing uh, tickets accordingly. But nothing could be better than 24-7 photo radar. And really, as long as people slow down, everything else will fall into place. And you will not find these crossover collisions. You will not find the increase of, of these types of collisions. And more importantly, you decrease the fatalities and increase the safety of the road. And that's our primary objective. I always thought a cardboard cutout of a police car would do the trick. Because as soon as you see it, whether it's real or not, you're slowing down. Oh, there's no doubt. But even the sign indicating photo radar uh, does the exact same thing. And, and that is the biggest deterrent. And that's what we need to focus in on, is trying to get it through these people's minds that, firstly, they're not entitled to speed of 140 kilometers an hour in a road designed for 90. And that I understand everyone's schedule is important, but you don't have the most important schedule in the world in which you can actually endanger other people's lives to get wherever you want to go. Leave 10 minutes earlier, uh, do something, but don't speed on our roads because it's creating havoc. In discussion with uh, Sam Marula, counselor for Ward 4 here in the great city of Hamilton on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. You mentioned photo radar. How soon can we expect it? Well, interestingly enough, uh, there is a bill in which I believe is the third reading uh, stage, which still needs royal assent. A couple of things need to be uh, come into place. Apparently, the photo radar component uh, can only be activated you know, on a road that's 80 kilometers an hour or less. Hence, um, my notice of motion the other day of reviewing the actual speed limit on the Red Hill to decrease it to 80 and also integrate photo radar. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, uh, you know, 80 or below. Why not have it on provincial highways or, or, ma- or major roads? I mean, that's where yeah. the real speeding is going to happen. I agree, and I can't speak on behalf of the province, but all I can do is we've requested it. Uh, they're, they're determining the parameters, and I'm just simply trying to fit our needs within those parameters. I understand the Red Hill will be repaved over the next couple of years. Can you speak to that? Actually, before the couple of years, yeah. So there was some issue with respect to the the road potentially being too slippery. Results came back inconclusive. Uh, clearly, uh, at any, if you're speeding on any road that's designed for 90 and you're going 140, all roads become slippery. Having said that, we're actually enhancing uh, the actual asphalt itself to exceed the already provincial standard that exists. Uh, so in essence, uh, we're, we're trying to help people help themselves and also in the, uh, spend on the capital to assist accordingly. Are there any other things that the city can do on the link in the Red Hill in terms of other signage, or is that a provincial no, no. responsibility? No, no, no. It's our road, so it's all okay. it's our responsibility entirely. And we have short-term plans as well as long-term plans uh, that have already been incorporated uh, with the help of, as I mentioned, with Councilor Jackson, Collins, and Conley, uh, we have been uh, very aggressive in the short and long-term plans. Reports, uh, which you can access clearly on uh, to our city webpage, or simply Google 
uh, uh, the Red Hill Parkway and uh, studies. Uh, you'll, you'll be able the reports will become available to you uh, via internet. Um, so, regarding the the speed limit photo radar, um, uh, you know, conundrum, uh, how, how is that going to be corrected? I mean, if we pass a motion in, in the city, is the province going to recognize that? Well, that's the key, right? So we can only request it. We do need. Uh, we are a creature of the province. We can only do as the province allows us to. Uh, so we've identified the presenting problem. Uh, clearly, the, I'm hoping that the province does as well, and they work with us towards a solution rather than against us uh, to allow the status quo to continue, which is unacceptable to everyone. Sam, appreciate the time. Drive safe. Likewise. Take care of it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Why are there so many crashes on the Red Hill Valley Parkway? Between 2012 and 15, there were 617 of them on the Red Hill. During that same time frame, 377 on the link. This, as 58,000 vehicles travel on the Red Hill, compared to 96,000 a day on the Lincoln Alexander Parkway. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Why are there so many crashes on the Red Hill? And is photo radar the answer? Lou's on the line. Hey, Lou, how are you? Hey, not too bad, Rick. So what do you think? Um, well, I'm not an expert, but I've been using the Red Hill and the Link from day one. Five days a week, Monday to Friday, because I work in the Niagara region, so I use it all the time. Okay. Not, not as much on weekends. Um, I only partially agree with Sam Marula, because I don't think he uses it anywhere near that much. Now, I'm not for FODAR radar. Uh, that's just another thing like red light cameras. That's going to make people edgy and cause different. But I'm not saying not to ever use that. That may have to come in at one point. But I've always said, after five days a week coming and going, um, I thought, I've always thought they should drop the speed limit from 90 to 80. Then maybe a lot of the people are going to go 90. Do you know what I'm saying? Could like, be the case. Yes, I've noticed that. I mean, other than the fact that there's tailgating, it's not, and I don't think he mentioned that 140. You don't really see a lot. That's a, that's a rare occurrence, a 140 or a 130 or even a 120, but you do see quite a bit of 110, yeah. 110 to 120. I figure if you drop it to 80 kilometers, um, most people are going to go 85 to 95, and your crazies are going to maybe try to go about 100 still then. We but see- that just... Go ahead. I was going to say, we'll see a lot fewer. i got to let you go here, Lou. Thanks for the call. Great uh, great comments. Let's go to Ron. Hey, Ron. Photo radar the answer? Hello, Ron. Oh, uh, sorry, Rick. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I believe it is. Um, I used to work in Kitchener, okay, and uh, I would take the Queenie West to Niagara and the off-ramp onto uh, the Red Hill Creek. Mm-hmm. Now, that off-ramp is 75 kilometers an hour, okay? Right. It's long enough to give you enough time to slow down, okay? And then it gives you the extra, I believe, 15, mm-hmm. which brings it up to 90. Um, so you're more on speed limit as opposed to photo radar? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, now, photo radar, that's, that's good. If we hit them every time, you know, they go over like uh, we're allowed 10, I believe, or is it 5 over the speed, uh, speed limit? Uh, well, it's at least 10. I've never gotten a ticket going 10 over. i gotta go, I got to run here, Ron. Thanks for the call, though. Lynn, how are you? I'm fine. 
Photo radar, the answer here to slow traffic only, down on the Red Hill? Only as a stopgap measure. The, the real problem with both the Red Hill and uh, the Link is that they're really one-lane roads because the exits are so close. And, and uh, the, the, um, it's very, very difficult to merge. True. Uh, so the, the problem is the original design. I mean, the original design of the Red Hill was going to be three lanes either way because of political matters and environmentalists and so forth. This was a compromise solutions, and sometimes compromise solutions aren't, aren't the answer, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, as, as we all know. The other problem um, on the, on the uh, Red Hill, and I haven't heard it mentioned too much, is the, the lighting at night. It's it, bad, eh? It, it is extremely bad, and that's something that could be easily uh, repaired or, or remediated immediately by the city. Yeah, that, that comes with the... They don't need anything for that. I, I, I don't know why uh, they just don't put lights at the exits. You're, uh, you're on them, and again, they come up so quickly, yeah. and unless you've got your high beams on, you can't see the exits until you're right on them. So uh, that's a problem, but... Uh, I agree. i, I got to go here, Len. Thanks for the call. Another caller, Mario. Hey, Mario, how are you? Hey, very well. Yourself? Good. you got 20 seconds. Okay, perfect. I just listened to Len's comments, yep. and that's exactly what I was going to mention, because if everyone remembers, this was a political decision, which Councilor Marula should remember and understand. Uh, we got this road built that took 50 years, and someone in the city had the courage to get it built. Okay, good comments. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. After complaining and complaining and complaining and threatening to rip up NAFTA for the last couple of years, Donald Trump is now poised to release a list as early as today revealing how he wants to change the deal. Let's get Marvin Ryder in on that discussion. Marvin, a good friend of the show, business professor, the Groot School of Business with McMaster University. Marvin, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And speaking of the fear factor, yes. here comes this letter from Donald Trump. <laughs> so what is going to be in this letter? Well, that's a good question. So let me just first take you back before we go forward. To open NAFTA and begin negotiating, two months ago, Donald Trump had to send a letter to Congress. Uh, what he wants to do is renegotiate NAFTA through something called a fast-track principle, which allows the president and his team to lead the negotiation without Congress getting that involved. Congress agrees to this if and only if they get to do some pre-negotiation uh, conversations with the president. So he sent this letter two months ago. In theory, that would allow them around August 15th to start the negotiations on NAFTA. But the Congress has complained that the letter was too vague. It was too open-ended. You know, just, I'm going to seek a deal that's good for America, and da-da-da-da-da, no, no details. So uh, for them to actually give this approval, they want to see some details. So the $50 question here is, what's going to be in this letter Donald Trump releases? Will this be enough for Congress, and will this continue the process so that around August 15th, 16th, uh, we can see this thing negotiated? Donald, and why I say this is the $50 question is that Donald Trump has been... Um, well, all over the map, frankly, on this. There are days where he says, I want to rip this up and start from point zero. Other days, when, for instance, Justin Trudeau was in Washington, you know, I'm just looking for some minor tweaks, just some minor tweaks. Uh, Vice President Pence, as recently as Friday, was at the American governor's meeting, and he said that, uh, you know, we're looking for a deal that's fair for everybody. Win, win, win. Win for Canada, win for Mexico, win for the United States. That's quite a different turn of phrase than Donald Trump. So to be perfectly candid, Rick, uh, I've got no idea what's going to be in this letter when it's released. Uh, but 
the smart thing is, and again, I know there are people who uh, listen to the show who would probably disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think the smart thing from Justin Trudeau's standpoint is he's not reacting to any of this. Even when the letter is released, I know what the press are going to do. They're going to run up and put a microphone in, in Justin's face and say, now, you know, what do we do now? And he's just going to play it really cool, which is absolutely the correct strategy in these kinds of negotiations. You don't start negotiating until the negotiating begins. Whatever Donald Trump releases, you say, well, thanks. We'll study it. We'll look it up. But you don't actually start negotiations till the negotiations start. It's basically what the Prime Minister said on Friday. Quote, I can't imagine that we would start negotiating before the negotiations actually start. We're going to be responsible about this, to be thoughtful and responsible in how we engage the administration. Obviously, that, that is the only strategy they can take. Uh, you know, the, the opposite of that would be, you know, hey, hey, U.S., this is what we want on, on trade, on dairy, on, uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. And that, and that would be the completely opposite, and I, I think, uh, the wrong thing to do. And even worse, here's what we want, and here's what we're prepared to give up, and here's what we're prepared to give you. And and why I'm sharing all this with you, Rick, is that Donald Trump has a history of being a great negotiator. Now, he's not actually going to be involved in the process. It'll be staff representing him involved in the process. But why he seems to win in negotiations is he gets his competitors so flustered that before the negotiation begins, they're already putting concessions on the table. Well, if you begin a negotiation by saying, here are the things I'm ready to give up, you're already going to lose. You don't give up anything if you don't get something in return. And in terms of these negotiations, I think the, uh, I'm just guessing again, but I'm thinking that the most difficult part of the negotiations will deal around where we have what's called supply management. That's dairy, that's in the beef industry, that's in the, the chicken industry, some of the other products that we produce on farms. Farmers are scared to death that Justin's going to give away everything to try to get a deal. And so instead, well, if we have to make some kind of concession, whatever that concession is, we want to make sure we're getting something back for it. We just don't start the negotiations with the uh, condescending comments and, and saying here are the things we're going to remove. So I, I, I know there are people who are going to want to say Justin's not doing a good job, but I think on this file he's playing the game absolutely correctly. One other quick note, Rick, is that... Uh, According to Mike Pence, again, this was on Friday, they'd like to do this renegotiation of NAFTA quickly. My gosh, how do you do it quickly? Well, you might remember a deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico were all members of this, but so were nine other countries around the world. At the time, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was supposed to be the new NAFTA. It was supposed to supersede NAFTA, be the new improved version of NAFTA. Well, Donald Trump takes office, and he instantly kills Trans-Pacific Partnership. But I believe the framework for a new NAFTA is already contained in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It is possible that if that's all that the administration wants to do is, is enact the clauses that are in that agreement, but just keep it between Canada, Mexico, and, and uh, the United States, we might be able to get a deal by early 2018. And why is that important? Well, in around uh, April, May of 2018, Mexico goes in for elections. So if you don't get a deal done relatively quickly, then you may have a whole different administration in Mexico, and they may, just like Donald Trump did, well, we want to rip it up and start all over again. We're chatting with McMaster University business professor at the DeGroote School of Business, Marvin Ryder, here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. One of the things that Donald Trump has referred to over and over again is trade deficits. Now, we understand that uh, the trade deficit between the U.S. and Canada is not very large, but that's a different story between the U.S. and Mexico, correct? 
Well, yes, and also it moves over time. So had Donald Trump been elected two years ago, Canada would not even be on the list. Because two years ago, we actually were the other way around, that um, America was shipping more to us at that time than we were shipping to them. What changed in the last couple of years, of course, is a lower Canadian dollar. And as is expected, this is why the Bank of Canada also was very slow to raise interest rates. They wanted to see a lower dollar because that encouraged people to buy more in Canada. It was like Canadian goods were on sale. And then as well, because the American policy has been to be energy self-sufficient, what they don't get from their self-production, they buy north of the border. They're not buying that much Arab oil or that much, uh, say, I don't know, uh, Russian oil or Nigerian oil or Venezuelan oil. They're buying a lot of their oil from Canada. So that combination of trying to be North American self-sufficient on energy and then a low Canadian dollar has caused us to swing around. Now we have a trade surplus with the United States. That then made us onto their hit list. Now, when Donald Trump's hit list of the top 10 countries, we're number 10. We just crept onto the list, and when he needs to wag a finger, he does. But I think anyone would remind him that has changed dramatically from year to year. Mexico, a little more so, um, and that's mostly because uh, Mexico is a pipeline for South American goods. Mexico has free trade with all the South American countries, but some of those South American countries do not have free trade with the United States. Thus, if I'm trying to sell a good from, let's say, Argentina... I move it first to Mexico, let a company there bring it into the United States, and it's created jobs in Mexico uh, to try and gain around uh, tariffs and barriers that way. So Mexico's in a, in a bit more of a trade surplus situation than we are. But again, when Donald Trump says he wants to eliminate those, I'm not sure that's always in the best interest of his country. It's like having the trade deficit with China. Uh, many Canadians love Chinese goods. This is why we've made Dollarama such a fast-growing retail store. People on one hand will say, well, we're going to lose Canadian jobs, but on the other hand, they love paying $2 for an item in Dollarama. You can't really have it both ways, and I think if Donald Trump pushes it too much, uh, he'll actually hurt the average American who will wind up paying more for products. We mentioned how uh, dairy farmers are uh, quite jittery with these uh, NAFTA renegotiations, uh, especially here in Ontario. Are are, uh, automotive workers and companies uh, shaking in their boots? Yeah, so he's... uh, Uh, He has suggested that what he'd like to revisit is a question around uh, auto parts and even automobiles in terms of content. Now, this gets to be a very technical question very quickly, but what does it mean to say that something is a North American part or a Canadian part? How much Canadian content do you have to have? Let me try to give you a really quick example. I know many people will look at a Ford and a GM and they'll say, well, that's a North American automobile. If you actually disassembled it and put all the parts on the ground, you'll find there are parts in that North American automobile that aren't made anywhere near North America. So the question then becomes, how much content do you have to have from a part standpoint? And then how much content do you have to have from a labor standpoint for something to be considered North American? For instance, if I make almost all of the car then bring it into Canada, and we put the windshield wipers on and the light pe- the uh, the headlights on, is that enough to make it Canadian? I think the average person would say, no, you didn't do enough in there. So there's some point where you hit this tipping point between where it's still an imported vehicle becoming Canadian. And, and this is something he's going to want to talk about, and it becomes very complex very, very quickly. Who has the most leverage going into these renegotiations? Well, it is clearly the United States. The United States is the number one economy in the world. Canada, is, it bounces around a little bit right now. We're number, 
nine, ten, eleven. It were very a very tight race with a few other places, um, and Mexico is even further behind. So the big guy in the room is the United States. If they sneeze, we all run up with a Kleenex to and say Gesundheit as they're doing this. Um, so they have the high ground here, but the problem we have had is all Donald Trump has given is this rather vague rhetoric that I want to renegotiate NAFTA without actually getting to too many, too many specifics. Um, and then when he points at Mexico, it's really about what we've heard about jobs leaving the United States going to Mexico. Okay, I get that, but what are you going to do in NAFTA to try to fix that problem? I actually think many of the jobs that have left, there's no way they're coming back. Uh, you can go after the different products and the manufacturers, but the jobs themselves, you can't legislate that they come back. Because the U.S. is number one on the planet, because Mexico already has, as you mentioned, that free trade deal with South America, is Canada under the most pressure to get a deal done? Well, I'm going to say no, uh, partly because we have diversified our base, or we've begun diversifying our base. It was last year that we signed a free trade deal uh, with Europe, uh, we've already met with Japan. In fact, at the recent G20 summit, uh, the Prime Minister met with the Japanese Prime Minister. Why I mention that is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the real plum in that Trans-Pacific Partnership was not the United States, but Japan. Japan has never signed a free trade deal with anybody. They're the third largest economy in the world. And uh, the talk now is they'd like to do something called TPP-11. In essence, the 11 countries other than the United States still move forward with this, and this would be great news for Canada. In fact, the Donald Trump presidency has allowed people like Justin Trudeau and the president of Mexico, uh, Mr. Peña Nieto, to, to actually stand up and uh, emerge from the shadow of the United States to say, well, if they don't want to trade with you, we sure do. And I think um, we've already seen China, for instance, do some overtures to Justin Trudeau saying, well, hey, why don't we talk about free trade between Canada and China? Justin correctly has, has put that, cooled that down a little bit. There's a lot of other problems in doing business with China we'd have to deal with. But the fact that they want to talk about that actually says that we're well positioned on the global market. So we want to deal with the United States. We don't want to upset our biggest trading partner. But at the same time, we need to diversify our trade so we're not over a barrel if something else happens down there. Last one for you. Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne's office said her priority is trade with the U.S. She also wants to discuss infrastructure spending and pharmacare. Those obviously the big three topics uh, in terms of our province. Yeah, so the, the infrastructure spending in particular, the concern was that if the United States is also going to spend on infrastructure but put barriers to Canadian companies, then wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. That actually violates our North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, she was also down at this governor's meeting on Friday, and she put a real positive spin on it. She wanted to remind people that for at least 30 states in the United States, Ontario is their biggest trading partner, and so you don't want to start putting up these kinds of trade barriers. But she also quietly said this, look, if you're going to proceed with this, then maybe we in Ontario had better think about putting up some trade barriers. We call that a fight to the bottom. We actually don't think this is good for anybody to start putting these trade barriers on. But if you persist on this, we may have to retaliate. And that was a quiet message on Friday. Canada, we love you. We're good trading partners. But if you anger us, we're not just going to sit here and take it. Yeah, obviously Canada holds some cards here in this, in this battle, too. No, absolutely. And so, uh, again, it raises questions about steel. Here in Hamilton, we've just seen the takeover of Stelco by an American company. So now, is it is it an American company? Is it a Canadian company? Is the steel Canadian? This is going to become very interesting. I asked Mr. Cheney, who's one of the principals in this, uh, the question at the Bay Area Economic Summit. He felt that he and his boss were going to be really 
really clever people in terms of when they needed to be Canadian, they're Canadian. When they needed to be American, they'd be American, and that they could lobby their way through this. Again, it's great to say only time will tell if they can actually do that kind of a dance. Yeah, on the steel imports, I know uh, President Trump on Friday was hinting at the quotas and tariffs, and not sure if either of those uh, will come to light, but uh, that's a discussion uh, for another day. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML couple of things. Uh, number one, we are uh, in uh, in mourning, so to speak. If you are a, uh, a zombie film fan, you're certainly uh, remembering the life of George Romero, who passed away at the age of 77. And uh, British actress Jodie Whittaker, you heard the clip right off the top, has been, uh, has been announced as the next star of the long-running science fiction series Doctor Who. Yes, Doctor Who finally has a female doctor. Uh, She is the first woman to take a role that has been played by a dozen men over six decades. Uh, Whitaker is best known for playing the mother of a murdered boy in the detective drama Broadchurch. And uh, she replaces a a Scottish actor by the name of Peter Capaldi uh, at the end of the year, according to the BBC. This was announced yesterday, and I think it was after the Wimbledon final. So you can imagine all these, you know, millions of viewers uh, watching Wimbledon. Uh, not only anticipating if Roger Federer was going to win his record-breaking eighth uh, crown at the All-England Club, but also on who the next Doctor Who uh, would be. Uh, Here to uh, explain the phenomenon and uh, all the excitement and why this is a a monumental uh, passing of the torch is uh, Scott Henderson, pop culture expert at Brock University. Scott, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Rick? Not too bad. So should we be surprised that Doctor Who finally is a woman doctor, or is this a long time coming? I think it's a long time. I think the last two changes, you know, when we had Peter Capaldi chosen, even Matt Smith before, there were rumors that they would go with a woman doctor, and finally those have come good, and I I think it's a fantastic choice. Why is it taking so long? I understand, obviously, there's going to be backlash whenever, you know, an actor changes, uh, you know, or flips the script or, or leaves a show. Uh, but really, uh, to have a woman replace a man um, uh, as Doctor Who, I don't think it's a really big thing. I think this is going to be exciting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's not out of character for the show. I mean, this is a Doctor Who regenerates and can be anyone. So why can't the Doctor have been a woman in the past. So it's it's certainly not a dramatic change. It's not like we suddenly get a, a female bond, which has been rumored as well. But, you know, this is keeping in character. Now, a female bond uh, is, that, you know, that, that's a discussion for another day. But I know Atomic Blonde has been called the female bond. Yeah, so we've had kind of variations of, mm-hmm. you know, of different female type Bond-esque characters in the past. So what do you expect out of Jodie Whittaker? I think she's going to be really wonderful in the role. She was fantastic in Broadchurch. She kind of went from the grieving, broken mother at the beginning to this stoic, steely character as the series progressed. And that's been key to Doctor in the past in Doctor Who, is that they have to kind of have that range. You know, there's comic moments, there are hard drama, there's action in there, and it's an adaptability. And she was great in Broadchurch at that. She was great in her episode of Black Mirror, the sci-fi show, so, you know, she's got the kind of background, she's got the kind of 
acting range, I think, to pull off the doctor. She had a couple of great uh, comments as well after the big reveal. She said that becoming the first female Doctor Who uh, feels completely overwhelming as a feminist, as a woman, as an actor, as a human. And she went on to say, I want to tell the fans not to be scared by my gender. Yeah, I think that's exactly the message to get out there. I think most fans of Doctor Who accepting of this I, I don't i don't think there'll be a huge backlash there's been you know some pockets of it on online but overall i think as i said it keeps with the show the regeneration makes this perfectly possible so it's, it's not a, a huge stretch it's kind of funny to talk about too because you know you know women have been uh, pillars in in, in theater and movies tv shows they've been lead characters you know mary tyler moore one of the the, the pioneers on uh, you know the small screen uh, you look at, you know, uh, a recent example of Wonder Woman and, and what a wonderful movie that is with a female lead being, you know, the main uh, show stealer. I mean, she was phenomenal in that movie. So, you know, to have a, a female lead take on a franchise like Doctor Who, I think I think is a great thing. I'm really looking forward to see how Jodie does in this role. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I think, you know, it's, it's going to get renewed attention for the show, which is probably good as well for the franchise. And is that maybe one of the reasons why they, they did this at this point in time? I think it might be part of it. I mean, you know, as I said, it's been long rumored. It's probably way overdue. So it's a good thing that it's happened. But I, I do get the sense that, you know, the ratings have slipped a little bit. But again, in you know, an era of streaming, that may not be as relevant. But I think to get that renewed attention, this was a significant move as well. We're chatting with Scott Henderson, pop culture expert at Brock University here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton's news talk leader, Rick Samprin, in for Bill this week. Uh, this past weekend, we lost the father of the zombie genre. Zombies cannot run. I say this definitively. As the grandfather or the godfather of zombies, zombies cannot run. So anyone who has a zombie running, don't listen to that person. Their ankles would snap. I mean, you know, what did they do? Go and join a spa the moment they uh, rose from the dead? Give me a break. <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> there, give me a break. They're dead. George A. Romero uh, passing away over the weekend at the age of 77, as I mentioned, the, the father of the zombie genre. Uh, here's a guy who was a pioneer in filmmaking who really opened up another, uh, really a, a realm to a whole new world. Oh, for sure. I mean, he took zombies, which had kind of lingered on the margins of horror and, you know, gave them purpose, gave them meaning and really brought it to the forefront with Night of the Living Dead. And you know, he was a filmmaker in his mid 20s doing this. I mean, really, you know, his kind of possessiveness as you get in that quote in defense of, you know, what zombies should be, I think is partly because he really developed into well-rounded characters. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think. I mean, he really humanized the undead. Yeah, I mean, he, he got the idea, his kind of they are them, you know, they, they are us and we are them kind of relationship. That, you know, the zombies are humans and humans could be zombies. And, you know, that core human relationship, he really f fleshed that out, I guess is the term to use. It's kind of funny, too, that the, uh, you know, the whole zombie or the undead or really, you know, we see on The Walking Dead and Fear of the Walking Dead and so many other, you know, movies and, and popular shows that, uh, you know, the, the zombie, and he kind of referred to it uh, in the clip, is, is is almost a standalone. I mean, this is, it is what it is. It, it can't go running off. It can't, you know, mutate and do, you know, other superhuman things. It's, it, it, it as I said, it is what it is, but it, it makes it so fascinating on how that idea was kind of created. 
Yeah, I mean, when you think back to that first film, Night of the Living Dead, I mean, you have this slow-moving figure coming across the cemetery when we see the very first zombie and, you know, think, well, why can't you outrun this? And what is it about this character that seems so easy? But, you know, then he eventually it's the overwhelming numbers that he kind of brings in and just to kind of drive. It's, you know, but it's, it's not really the superhuman qualities or anything. Funny to think that that film, Night of the Living Dead, uh, was made for just $100,000. Yeah, I mean, he he brought in locals as extras. He filmed black and white, did a lot on the sly, on location. I mean, he had he had a vision. I think that's what makes it work, because it really does drive home the kind of, these are real people, <laughs> these zombies, because they're on real locations. There's not excessive makeup there's not some fantastical sets i mean they were in real places and then you know the follow-up dawn of the dead which is perhaps my favorite of the lot you know set in a local shopping mall that really everyone was going to all the time everyone can relate to it exactly it was very relatable and you know and it made the allegory very clear right i mean you know the zombie-like shoppers in the mall and the actual zombies in the mall it wasn't a huge stretch for people to understand that he was trying to make the point about that uh, a tweet from Stephen King on the passing of uh, George Romero. Uh, Sad to hear my favorite collabor- uh, collaborator and good old friend George Romero has died. George, there will never be another like you. He's really a, a pioneer in a, in a whole new uh, genre of filmmaking, right? He was, and it's it's become so huge in the intervening years. I mean, we can it's one of those things we can trace right back. I mean, I guess we can look back to something like Frankenstein and go to the Mary Shelley, but it's kind of, you know, within our era, we can look and say the real kind of categorization of zombies and zombie films as a genre started in 1968 with Night of the Living Dead. And it really pulls at, you know, the thought of, you know, this could maybe one day kind of maybe sort of happen, right? Yeah, again, you know, the, the reality that he sets it, you know, shooting in a real cemetery in real locations, and it's not so fantastical, you know, people's fears of radiation, of space, of, you know, and the kind of vague descriptions he gives. We don't know why, but, you know, we do bury the dead six feet under the ground. And, you know, the notion that they could rise back up has always been one of those fears. And he kind of gave it a real visceral sense. Uh, the Walking Dead, uh, one of the, if not the most uh, popular show uh, on the, uh, or at least in North America, in terms of viewership and numbers. And uh, who would have thought, you know, way back when, when George Romero was putting, uh, you know, his his first film together about zombies, that it would spawn uh, a multi gazillion dollar franchise like The Walking Dead. Yeah, and um, apparently he was invited to direct an episode. He he declined. I mean, I don't think he was. A huge Walking Dead fan, interestingly enough, but it's the way it's kind of spun off from that very early and, you know, as you point out, very cheap beginning, a $100,000 film that has kind of grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. Was he not a fan of The Walking Dead or at least, you know, uh, jumping into a director's chair because of the soap opera niche of the show, if I can put it that way? Yeah, I mean, there's a few quotes from him where he kind of derided some of the soap opera elements and the extended elements, and it lost a little bit of the political criticism that he he found so important to, you know, what he was doing, at least with the zombie. So that, you know, it kind of grew beyond that, and it turned them into some sort of, you know, super powerful monsters in a way, and it lost some of the, the essence, I think, that he really liked about the zombie genre. Mm-hmm. 
Scott, appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy uh, Brock University and everything that goes along with uh, pop culture. Okay, thanks very much, Rick. All right, Scott Henderson, pop culture expert at Brock University, joining us to talk about uh, not only the passing of uh, George A. Romero, widely regarded as one of the kings of horror films, uh, died yesterday uh, after a, a battle with lung cancer at the age of 77 behind the classic Night of the Living Dead and uh, well, a whole other lot of uh, horror movies. And uh, British actress Jodie Whittaker, finally, a woman, is uh, Doctor Who, the first woman to take a role that's been played by a dozen men over six decades. Uh, congratulations and good luck to the 35-year-old Whittaker. That is an accomplishment in and of itself. Um I do have to mention uh, Martin Landau as well, an Oscar-winning actor and star of Mission Impossible TV series, uh, died as well on on Saturday uh, in Los Angeles. He was 89. In fact, he just celebrated his 89th birthday. Uh, He also uh, won an Oscar for um, his portrayal of horror movie star Bela Lugosi in 1994's Ed Wood. He also did gain some measure of fame among Star Trek fans for a role that he didn't play, and that was Mr. Spock. Apparently he turned it down, and, uh, well, the rest uh, is uh, is history, that's for sure. Uh, one other item and person that I do want to mention who passed away as well, this happened on Saturday night, Bob Wolf is his name. Uh, if you're not a sports fan, fan, you probably won't know the name Bob Wolf, but he was, uh, and still to this day, the only sportscaster to call play-by-play championships in all four major North American professional team sports. Bob Wolf was 96. He broadcast the NFL's championship game, uh, the World Series, the NBA Finals, and the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, He interviewed everyone from Babe Ruth. Uh, He was uh, the voice of the Washington Senators. Uh, Did play-by-play of the Knicks and the Rangers for decades. He was uh, also in the a Guinness Book of World Records for the longest consecutive run as a broadcaster at 78 years, uh, dating to 1939 at WDNC Radio when he was a student at uh, Duke University. So Bob Wolf uh, passing away. He was 96. So a bit of a sad weekend, but also a weekend in which we can uh, you know, honor those who uh, did so much in the world of uh, entertainment and sports broadcasting in terms of uh, Bob Wolf's legacy the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml